Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Tonight we're going to talk about the holiness of God. The holiness of God does not conflict with any of the other with any of the attributes that we've talked about, although at times it may seem that sometimes the attributes of God are in in uh, in conflict with each other, but actually it's not true because they're all all they're all, all the attributes are tied up in the person of God, and God is not in any way a schizoid in the sense that you know his. He's wanting to be merciful, and yet he's wanting to be just, and he's loving, and yet he's holy. And you, you kind of picture a kind of a schizophrenic God that's just kind of uptight with all of his attributes, and that's not a proper picture of God because he is totally relaxed, and all of these elements of his character flow together beautifully and, and in a perfect balance and in a perfect harmony with who he is. Like so many things that I've discovered in the, in, in studying the Bible and, and as God has showed himself to us, many of the things in the scripture are held in dynamic tension. It's like the, you know, it's like a teeter totter with things balanced and, and they're, they're hanging together in a dynamic balance. And I found that much of truth is that way. It's not, you can just paint a black and white picture and say, well, this is the way God is, or this is the way it is. But I find that truth is in a, is in a tension. It's an, or a dynamic balance, and so that you have to balance all things so that it maintains equilibrium. And, and I find that many times that's the way that the theological concepts from the Scripture are, that, it, that when you begin polarizing and you begin taking sides, for example, on the issue of eternal security, you know, the once saved, always saved, if you polarize on that and go to an extreme and you say, once a person saved, he can't do anything to get out of salvation. I think he's lost the divine tension or the divine balance of, of what the real issues are. But neither do we want to go to the other side of saying, that, and this is what I call eternal insecurity, where you never know whether you're a Christian or not. It's like you really never know if you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, and you really never know if you've been saved. And I, that isn't a scriptural uh, truth either. And the two, those two things are brought together in the character of God, and they hang in dynamic balance. And so when you feel insecure, God gives you a revelation of his security so that you can relax and, and, and rest in his love. And yet when you're getting too slack and slothful in your walk with God, God may take you to the other side, and he may show you that you are in danger of walking out of his hand if you persist in your rebellion. And so that will cause to bring us back into the center where God wants us to be. And so many times I, I see truth as, as, as that. It's in a dynamic balance. And at one time God will, will weigh one side and another time at our point of need, he'll weigh the other side. And that's really helped me to understand that all of theology hangs upon God himself. God is the center of the universe and his personhood is the center of all our thoughts and ideas. And so we're not just, just dealing with kind of an objective theology or an objective creed, but we're dealing with a wonderful person, the most neat and glorious person in all the universe. And that has really helped to solve some of the, the dilemmas in my own life. And so tonight we're going to concentrate on the holiness of God and it's not in conflict with his love, with his justice or his mercy. Now, if you study other religious books in the world, if you were to study other writings, there's no other book in the world that talks about holiness. 
Holiness is a unique attribute, and it's unique to God. And the Bible is the only book in the world that talks about it. It's a neglected truth in the church today, and it's it, it, when we neglect the issue of holiness, it, uh, has, it yields disastrous, re- disastrous results because the world will only be aware of sin to the degree that the church is holy. The world will only be aware of sin to the degree that we, the church, individually and corporately, are walking in holiness. There's not a sense of wrongdoing when we, the church, when we, the people of God, are not walking in personal holiness before God. Holiness is not an outward list of rules to be kept, but holiness is an inward attitude. Holiness is not an outward thing, but it's an inner attitude. Very important to realize that. That revelation of God's holiness is something God wants to do inside of you. It's not an outward list of rules. Some of you may have been raised in a, in a particular church background where if you were holy, then you didn't do certain things. And I'm, I'm acquainted with the Pentecostal background. And some of the Pentecostal taboos are drinking of, of any kind, going to dances, wearing makeup for girls, wearing perfume, wearing any kind of gold jewelry. And those are those are some of the things that have been legalistically set up as if you're holy, then you don't do these things. And see, it's fine if God speaks to your heart about that. And if God says, I don't want you going to dances, then that's life for you. But you can't put that legalistic standard on other people, see. And what happens is that for the first generation, it's a life relationship with God. And they don't go, for example, they don't go to dances because it's their conviction. They, they don't want to go, and they believe God has spoken to them about that. The next generation takes the, the legalistic form of it, and they don't go to dances because, well, mom and dad taught me, and our church teaches that I'm not to go. Actually, I would really kind of like to go, but the church says don't, so I'm not going to do it. The third generation looks at it and says, it's a bunch of hogwash, and they write it off, and they go their own way. That pattern is seen through the biblical history, and it's seen through church history over and over again. So, see, each generation has to have an individual and a fresh revelation of God's holiness. So, therefore, holiness is not just an outward list of rules, but it's an inward attitude that that God wants to reveal to us. In Matthew 23, verses 25 through 27... Matthew 23, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Now that's Jesus' indictment against the religious leaders of the time, who outwardly were very religious people. And I mean, they lived a a far more austere life than any of us lived. They They excelled in religious works. And yet Jesus said, you're not approved because the inside of the cup is full of wickedness of all kinds. You know, we as people, it's just like after the fall, when Adam and Eve were 
after they disobeyed God, they became aware of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they were aware that they were naked, so they began hiding themselves. And they covered themselves up with loin, you know, with fig leaves, with loincloths. And, and ever since, the, the dilemma of sin, we hide from one another. And we always put on masks of pride. And see, we want to appear to be righteous, don't we? So we put... See, we clean the outside up and we all look real nice on the outside. But see, inside we don't deal with our attitudes, with our thoughts. And and it's real it, – it, to a degree, you can fool people, can't you? You know, you can put on the mask and fool people and hide your real feelings and thoughts. But you can't fool God because he sees the heart. And God blows a technical foul on you when your heart is wrong and the outside is right. And there's such a propensity for people to get religious, we, we, we get religious, and I'm using that in a bad way. That, that means we put on the mask and we be pharisaical. We're hypocrites, see? The word hypocrite means play actors, and the play actors in the Greek theater were the people that put on the masks. Remember in the old theaters, they had the smile and the frown, those two masks on the doors? Or those were the masks that the Greek players used, and they would play the part by, whole, by having a mask on. Like It would be like a Halloween mask. And so religious people put on masks. See, we portray us being as something that we're not. And we're going to look at this extensively next week because we're going to look at our response to holiness. And we're going to find that humility is how God's holiness is worked out in our lives. As we become a real person, we become more and more open and honest with who we really are. And that's what God desires for us. So we need to really be careful that we're not getting religious and putting on a show for people, but that we're seeking to live an honest and a meek and an open life. That's the way Jesus calls us to live. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, Samuel is going to anoint the new king. God had revealed to him that it was from the family of Jesse that God was going to choose the next king. So he goes and he asks for the oldest son and he looks at his oldest son and he says, boy, this is a nice looking guy. Surely this is the next king of Israel. And the Lord rebukes Samuel and he said, don't look at his outward appearance because I look at the heart. I don't look at the outward appearance of a man. And he says, I have not chosen him to be king over Israel. And he went through all of his six sons, six of his sons, and there was the Lord had said, not said to Samuel that this was the next king. And so Samuel said, well, well, don't you have another son? And he says, oh, yeah, David's out in the field, but you don't want David. And and Samuel said, go get him. He is the one that God has chosen to be the king of Israel. And see, his brothers didn't even honor him at all. They didn't even count him worthy of coming in and being counted as part of the family almost. And yet God chose him because God looks at the heart. And that's where... We need to seek approval from God is on the heart level. And that's where holiness is worked out in our lives. There's three Greek words that give us an idea of what holiness is like. I don't know about you, but for me, holiness was kind of a, um, a nebulous concept for me for a long time. You hear the word holy. We sing songs and scriptures that talk about the holiness of God. But it was um, kind of an intangible thing. I really had trouble grasping concretely what exactly was holiness. And so we go back and look at the three the Greek words, it'll give us an idea of, and, and helps us to, uh, to convey what the word holiness words. There's a Greek word named hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, and there's three forms of it, and this is where we get the three definitions for the word holy. The first definition is one that is worthy of worship, high esteem, and respect by virtue of dignity or character. 
I believe these definitions are written out on your on your handout sheet too. The first concept is one that is worthy of worship, high esteem, respect, and respect by virtue of dignity or character. And so it's something that's worthy of worship and high esteem. And so when we say that God is holy, we find that he is worthy of worship and high esteem. He's worthy and he is able to live up to all the things that are that the Bible declares about God. So that's the first concept, it's something that's worthy of worship and high esteem. The second concept is it's uh, what what we call an awful thing. Now awful in the old English sense of being full of awe, full of awe and wonder. And when we say that God is holy, we say that he is so pure and so beautiful that it fills us with awe and wonder and we stand back and go, wow. And we're filled with an amazement inside as we, as we see and as we sense the holiness of God. And the holiness of God produces a certain tension inside of us. Not a wrong kind of tension, but the holiness of God is something that's always going to cause us to honor and respect God. Not to cower away in fear and to kind of go and run in the corner and hide in the corner. But there's always, a, there's always a bridge between man and God. And God alone is God. He's the creator and the originator of all things. And we are his creatures. And although God has adopted into us into his family, he's bestowed his love upon us, there's always that bridge where God is God and we are his creatures. We are, he originated and gave us life. And there will always be that, that honor and respect that's due him. And I appreciate the fact that Jesus has come to be our friend. And Abraham, it's written in James, Abraham was the friend of God. And I really believe that we are to be friends with God. But it's never a friendship where it's like two human beings having a friendship. It's us as human beings having a relationship with the eternal God. And so though there's always a tension in that, and it always, it always gives rise to a profound respect and awe for who God is. Understand what I'm trying to convey? He will always be God. We will always be his creatures. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. But we will always respect him and honor him as God. The third concept of, of holiness is something that is pure, clean, and innocent. Something that is pure, clean, and innocent. And it's free from all evil. Perfect freedom from all evil. And this is where the concept of light in 1 John, John says that in God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And see, because God is light, everything that God is and does is open to inspection. And God doesn't have to have a closed set of books, or God doesn't have to do something in a corner, because everything he does is just and upright and righteous, therefore he can live in what we call the light and what the Bible calls the light. See, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's a beautiful thing that God invites us to come and to inspect him. God says, come and see what I'm like. See if you find any fault with me. And God can do that because there is no fault with him. Everything he does, he does according to truth and he does it the right way. And you can never find fault with God because he's perfect in everything that he does. And so he invites us to come and to walk in the light with him. 
fact, that's what it says in 1 John 1, 7, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all right, unrighteousness. Koinonia happens when there's an honesty to share who we really are. See, when we're taking down the masks and when we're allowing ourselves to really be known for who we really are, both our successes and our failures. And it's in that that we find success, we find acceptance and koinonia. And that's what walking in the light's all about. It's walking in a just a um, beautiful degree of, of honesty. Find more and more, God calls me to be honest with my brothers and sisters, with my wife, with my family, with my friends. God calls me to live a life of openness and honesty and not to hide things from people. That's our tendency because we want to hide things because either we're ashamed of them or, you know, we, we shouldn't have thought a certain thing. And, and so we try to put forth the image of dishonesty. We try to put forth the image that we did something else. And that's what God is working on us to, to get, get free from our lives. The, uh, so that's, those are the three concepts of holiness. One is something is worthy of worship. Two, something that's filled with awe and wonder. And three, something that is pure, clean, and innocent. The noun form of the Greek word hagios yields the word that, that is rendered saints in the New Testament. You find the word saints written many times, and it literally means holy ones. Literally, literally means holy ones. And if you have a New American Standard, you'll see that little margin note every time that, that the word saints is used. It means literally the holy ones. Now, are you a saint tonight? You are a saint tonight because you've been washed and you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And if, you, and if we are walking in the light, that is that we're responding to the truth that we presently have, then we are holy in God's sight. See, we've been cleansed, we've been washed, and he's pleased with us. And then there's a verb form of that, and it's to make holy. And that's the word sanctify. How many of you heard the word tossed around? The word sanctify simply means to make holy, the process of being made holy. And this would have three parts to it. It would be to purify to make blameless, and to set apart unto. Those are the three things of sanctification. One, to purify. Two, to make blameless. And three, to set apart unto. To purify, to make blameless, and to set apart unto. So God's in the, purify, in the process of sanctifying us. He's purifying us. He's making us blameless. That means he wants us to live in, in, in a way that no one can blame us. Say he, he wants us to live perfectly and to live rightly. And then he wants us to be set apart unto him rather than being set apart unto the world and all of the wrong things that go on in the world. Okay, I want, I want to give you some definitions of, of what holiness is. These are not on your notes, so you might want to take notes on these. What is holiness? And the first thing that we can say about holiness is that holiness is a unique aspect of God's character, which is without parallel anywhere else in the universe. It's a unique aspect of God's character that is without parallel anywhere else in the universe. Now, we can know the love of God because we know what human love is, don't we? We can know a little bit, to some degree, the justice of God because we understand justice in human relationships. Same way with mercy. We understand what it is to receive mercy. But holiness is a unique attribute of God that unless God reveals that to us, 
we are not going to know holiness. And so this attribute of God, we are dependent totally upon the Holy Spirit to come and reveal God's holiness to us. I want to read a quote from page 111 of Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is simply is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, approachable, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but, he, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And so God's holiness is something that we are, we are totally dependent on the Lord to come to us and to reveal that attribute of God. And so we'll see in the practical application tonight. This is something that we need to be asking God, saying, Lord, I don't understand your holiness. Come and show it to me. And when we look at some examples here in a moment, we're going to see the reaction of different people as they came face to face with a a small revelation of God's holiness. And we'll see what happened to them. Holiness is the mark of someone who knows God. Holiness is the mark of someone who knows God. And when someone has a revelation of holiness, you know it. I think of some of the teachers, Bible teachers that, teachers that I've met. And there's one lady in particular, her name is Joy Dawson, that um, when I was in Youth with a Mission made a particularly strong impression upon my life. And she was a lady that walked in the holiness of God. And there was a certain tension being around her because I, I sensed a lot of love from her. But it was scary because when she looked into your eyes, I had the feeling that she could, she could know everything that I was thinking. It was uncanny. And I felt like I was being, like the light was penetrating into the deepest part of my soul. I felt that, that revealing light of God, not in a condemning way, but I felt exposed when I was around her. And it was, it was, the, it was God's holiness in her life. And it, 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 put, it wasn't something that was real comfortable to be in. Because it, it exposed, exposed my, my inconsistencies. It exposed the sin that I was harboring. And it was kind of unnerving in some ways. And I was a pretty young Christian. It was, it was sometimes very unnerving. And I wasn't comfortable because I had been some, so accustomed to living in darkness. And I, hadn't, I haven't, I would qualify that, I haven't learned to live in the light. I'm learning. But, it, but see, God starts with a, a very dim revelation of his holiness. And then he'll increase it. And he starts turning on the light a little more and a little more. And see, he wants to prepare us to live eternally with him. And God lives in a place of light. Heaven is a place of light. There's no hiding in heaven. Everybody's got, you know, you've seen those little bank signs that, you know, have a little message that goes across the sign in little lights, you know, and it says, you know, buy time pay, buy your car from us, low interest rates. Well, anyway, in heaven, everybody's going to have one of those things on their forehead. So all your thoughts are going to be right out there for everybody to see. And that's why people who live wickedly can't stand heaven because they're, 
immediately exposed for who they are. And, they, and because they don't want to live rightly, they don't want to live by truth, they'll run to the darkness. Instead of coming clean and, and saying, I want to live right, they'll run to the darkness because they don't want to have their nakedness and their, their evilness exposed. And so, see, God's preparing us to live with him eternally, to dwell in the light forever. And we can learn that even now as we, as we walk with him. And if you have had an encounter with God's holiness, then you will begin to convict other people. I mean, you don't have to say anything. It's something that dwells with us. And, and as you walk in the light with Jesus, sinners will be convicted by being just being around you. They will begin to sense their sin before God. And that's a beautiful thing when Christians can convict people. And that's why sometimes persecution comes, because people are exposed and they're, they're uncomfortable because we're walking in the light and they don't like the light. And so rather than yield to the light, they begin to kill those who walk in the light. And that's, that's one of the reasons why persecution comes. And so God calls us to be holy. He calls us to walk in purity. In Proverbs 30, verses 2 and 3, it says that the true knowledge of God lifts a man from being an animal to a son created in God's image. It's, the, it's holiness that lifts us from being just animalistic, which is that's what we act like when we sin, unto the high calling of being a son of God. The second concept of holiness is that holiness is purity where every action is carried out in love without any partiality or self-assertiveness. Holiness is a purity, or holiness is purity, where every action is carried out in love without any partiality or self-assertiveness. And so holiness, in a sense, is just pure love. It's love that's carried out without any wrong motives, without any tainting. Another quote from Tozer's book, it says, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, to be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, all of his attributes are holy. That is, whenever we think, whatever we think of belonging as belonging to God must also be thought of as holy. It says in the Bible that the angels cover their faces when they look at the direct presence of God. Even the angels that are created to be in the full presence of God, when they look directly at him, they have to shield their eyes because they cannot stand the intensity of the light of the purity of God's holiness. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says this about God. It says, Paul, Paul says that God who dwells in unapproachable light whom no man can see or has seen. God dwells in unapproachable light, and that's the light of his holiness. In Exodus chapter 33, I want to look at an example of how Moses sought to have a revelation of the holiness of God. In Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23, Moses is asking that he would receive a revelation of the glory of God. Verse 18, this is on a conversation that him and God are having. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And God responds and said, I myself, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim the name and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, 
and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But God says, my face you cannot see, for no man can see me and live. Isn't that an astounding statement? Here Moses is one of the most closest men to God throughout all time. And yet Moses, when, he, when God's asked, Moses asks of God, he says, let me see you, God, as you really are. God says, you can't see me and live. You are just not prepared to be in the presence of my illuminating holiness. Then the Lord says, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so God passes by. He holds his hand over the rock. And then as God leaves his trail of glory, he lifts his hand away. And Moses is blown away by what he sees, so much so that he comes off the mountain with a face that's glowing with the glory of God. Utter purity, utter, utter cleanness. And it's, it's, that, it's that atmosphere of perfect love where there's no taint of manipulation or selfishness. It's all done in absolute purity. The third concept of holiness is that holiness is separation from all evil and unwholeness. Separation is, it, holiness is separation from all evil and all unwholeness. Another quote from Tozer God is holy, and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. The formation of the language itself suggests this. The English word holy, deriving from the Anglo-Saxon word haleg, hal, means well and whole. Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy what would ever destroy it. When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates polio that would take the life of her child. And so God's holiness, see, God is so separated from all that which is sin and all that which is evil and unclean that God is just miles and miles and miles, light years away from sin. And, and, and because God's holiness is a place of health and wholeness, it's a beautiful place to be. Sin is, the, is what brings the destruction into the world. Sometimes you think, that, maybe some of you have thought this, and if you thought, well, if I'm going to be holy, well, then you know, I'm not going to be much fun. You know? Sometimes people think that. Well, you know, to be holy, you have to put on a black robe and and, and mumble Latin phrases, you know, then you're really holy, you know, or, you know, we have all sorts of weird concepts of what holiness is. And sometimes we have the misconception that holiness is not having fun. But I think holiness is the place where you can enjoy life to the max. Holiness and health go hand in hand. And God, in his concern for the moral 
condition of the universe, he desires everything to dwell in holiness, just as he is. So holiness is separation from all evil and unwholeness. And God will never sin because everything he does is upright. And then the fourth description of holiness, the fourth um, definition is holiness is a description of a moral being who is fulfilling all of his moral obligations and responsibilities. Holiness is a description of moral being of a moral being who is fulfilling all of his moral obligations and responsibilities. God is doing everything he can to save man. God is doing everything he can to restore all of the lost people that are in the world. Do you believe that? God is doing everything he can to save every person on the face of this earth right now. If there was any more, God would do it. His, he fulfills all of his responsibilities. He's never found wanting in fulfilling his responsibilities. And that's a beautiful thing. Because think of how many things that you should have done that you didn't do. You know, boy, I think of things that, oh, I really ought to have done this. And it would have been nice to do this. And, you know, there's no end to the things that I should probably have done. Yet God fulfills all of his obligations. And that's another reason. On the judgment day, no one is going to point at God and say, well, God, you just didn't give me a chance. Because the record will show that God gave every one of us chance upon chance upon chance upon chance. He mercifully dealt with us, and yet we repeatedly turned a deaf ear to his calling, and we, we didn't heed his correction in our lives. And so, see, there's no excuse for people on the judgment day because of the lengths God has gone to try to reconcile men back to himself. He has done everything possible. And because God does everything possible he can to save the world, he expects us to do the same. He expects us to do all that we can do to reconcile men back to him. And that's our calling of going and proclaiming the gospel to everyone. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all working 24 hours a day in every person's life in the whole world to try to draw them to Jesus and try to draw them to a place of reconciliation. So that's a pretty heavy thing. I can really honor a God that does that, a God that fulfills all of his moral obligations and responsibilities. God's not like a, a bad bureaucrat that doesn't do what he's supposed to do. God does everything that love requires him to do and more. Not only does he live the letter of the law, but he's merciful and he goes, he goes the second mile. You know, he turns the other cheek. He gives us chance upon chance upon chance. He's a wonderful God. What are the two great obligations of men in response to this? They're summed up in this, that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first part of the commandment. And what's the second one? Love Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the true great commandments. And if we will fulfill those two commandments, then we'll be fulfilling all of our obligations and responsibilities. We'll do all the things that love would require us to do. And that's the law God wants us to live by. He wants us to live by the law of love. He wants to always in every situation to do the loving thing. John 14.6 is a familiar scripture. John 14.6. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes through the Father but through me. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. 
So truth is the standard of love relationships. In order for there to be a right relationship, there must be truth. Must Isn't that true? In order for you to have a good relation with someone, there's got to be truth. You've got to be honest with each other. And when there's truth and honesty, then something called trust can develop. And so all true relationships are built on truth and love and trust. That's what defines a relationship, whether it be with God or with each other. And I've given four principles to to highlight um, this concept of relationships. The first one is that truth is the eternal objective standard for right relationships. Truth is the eternal objective standard for right relationships. God always lives by truth. Therefore, he has total relationship and eternal life. And you can equate all all three of those things. Truth, total relationship, and eternal life are, are almost synonymous terms. And think of the Trinity. The Trinity is such a... Um, um, a mind-boggling concept, and we'll talk more about that um, next quarter in theology too. But you know, in the think of the Trinity in all of the years, the eons, the eternities that God has been here. He's always been here, which is a mind blower in itself. God has never had a divorce. There's never been a divorce in the Trinity. You know, remember the story of the eternal triangle. You know, the two-on-one. You know, or uh, the girl must choose between two guys, or the guy must choose between the two girls. And there's none of that in the Trinity. There's never been a divorce in the Trinity. There's never been a personality clash. There's never been one of the members of the Godhead that's saying, okay, I'm going to walk out on this one. You know, Jesus saying, forget this. I'm going to go do my own thing. Or the Holy Spirit saying, I give up. Or the Father saying, get out of here, you rascals. See, none of that has ever happened. And see, because God lives by truth and he lives in right relationship with himself. See, God's a a sweet little community within himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's because they always treat each other with love, and everything they do is in the light, and it's always based on truth. Jesus did not come to earth because the committee voted two to one that he should come. And because he was in the minority, he didn't come begrudgingly, but he came because that was the plan. The Holy Spirit is here now and fills all of us as members of his church, not because Jesus had enough and said, okay, Spirit, you go for a while. It was because they worked together in that eternal plan. And, and, And it's because they live by truth. And so truth is the eternal objective standard for right relationships. And if we're going to have right relationships, we've got to come to a place where we love the truth. And it says Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And so when we, when we love Jesus, we'll begin to love the truth, truth about God and truth about ourselves. Okay, the second principle is that God asks us to live by the same standard of truth that he does. God asks us to live by the same, same standard of truth that he does. Now, God doesn't say, do as I say and not as I do, but God himself is a model of the truth. See, the Trinity proves that. The unity of the Trinity forever and ever and ever shows that it works. And God was simply inviting man to partake of that. That's what Adam and Eve had. They had the choice to live by truth or not to live by truth. And sadly, they chose not to live by truth. Sin is to live supremely for yourself. That's the essence of sin. It's to put your happiness, your rights above everybody else's. What you're basically trying to do is to be God. You're saying that I'm going to be the little God of my universe and the whole universe should revolve around me. That's the essence of sin. 
Righteousness is to live for others. Righteousness is to live for others. That's to put others on the same footing as yourselves. And you consider the other person just as important as yourself. That's what righteousness is. And that's the only logical way to live. There's an example that I, I thought this was a, a very Ill, good illustration. There was a banquet in heaven and hell. It was a beautiful banquet. There was just food of all kinds. The angels had cooked for a couple hundred years, and, and there was stuff galore, things that we would just delight in. And everybody was sitting around this table waiting to eat. But the problem was that someone had put splints on everybody's elbows, and you couldn't bend your elbow right here. Therefore, that rendered your hand useless to getting any food up to your mouth. And no one, no one could eat. At least you couldn't eat yourself because, you know, there's no way you could get the food into your mouth because your elbows had splints on them. The picture in heaven, because everyone in heaven has learned to live for others, they've learned the secret of giving and living the way God does. In heaven, everybody else was feeding each other. And instead of worrying about, well, am I going to get fed, I reached out and I started feeding my friend. And in response, my friends started feeding me. And in heaven, everybody's having a good time feeding each other because they learn the principle of not living for yourself, but living for the other person. Now, in hell, it's the same kind of thing. They got this beautiful banquet, but in hell, no one is moving and doing anything because everyone is thinking of themselves. And they're thinking, well, if I feed Tom, how do I know he's going to feed me back? I'm not going to be vulnerable to him. Everybody's sitting there. You know, pouting, and no one eats because no one is being willing to look beyond their own selfishness. They're so tied into themselves, they can't look out for anyone else. And that's what the difference between heaven and hell is. Heaven people have learned to live by the truth, and they're, they, they're learning to live by the way of giving. Hell is a place where people say, I'm going to live for myself, and everybody else can, can go blow steam. I'm going to live for me. And as a result, there's no relationship possible with that person. The third principle is that disregarding truth has eternal consequences. Disregarding truth has eternal consequences. And the consequences are more than just making God mad. It's not just a matter of God got mad and he says, boy, I'm going to get you. But truth has eternal consequences. If we obey the truth, we're going to re reap the reward of obedience. But if we disobey the truth, then we will reap the, the, the curse of disobedience. And that is meted out to every person impartially. And when we disregard truth, the consequence of that is the consequence of sin. And sin eternally scars our personality. When you sin, who do you hurt? You hurt yourself. You hurt God and you hurt other people. But basically, you destroy yourself. When you break the Ten Commandments, you don't get away with breaking the Ten Commandments. People think, ah, oh, we got rid of the Bible. We got rid of these moral restrictions. We're going to do our own thing. The people that do that sadly do not realize they are destroying themselves morally. They are incapable almost of having a right relationship because they're living for themselves. And the more a person persists in living for himself, the harder it is for God to reach him. The harder in heart they get because there's consequences for choices. We're all people that are in, a, in, in process of becoming something, aren't we? 
And every day we've made choices. See, today you've made choices in, in what you've done today. We've all made moral choices. And either we have become a little bit more Christ-like or we've become a little more selfish, depending on what kinds of things we chose today. So today we changed a little bit as people because there's been another 24-hour period and another trip around the sun, you know, that we've lived, and or at least another turn around the earth. And so our, our moral character, see, we're a little bit different than we were yesterday, and we're a little bit more cast into the kind of person that we're going to eternally be. And if we've responded to Jesus and to truth, then we're going to be more like Jesus. But if we've not, we're going to be harder in heart, and it's going to be harder for us to turn around. So actually, we are the summation of our choices. We're the summation of our choices. And praise God that Jesus can erase and he can heal the years of, of um, bad choices in our lives. Thank God there's a redeemer that can redeem all of the junk that can, you know, the word salvation, the word salvage means to fix up, doesn't it? If you go to the wrecking yard and you go salvage an old car, what do you do? You fix it up, pound all the dents, rebuild the motor, repaint it, make it like new again. And that's what salvation is. So we've destroyed our lives through sin. And now Jesus is in the process of fixing us up, getting all the dents and the scars out of our lives and teaching us to live his way of righteousness rather than our own wrong, rebellious ways. And so disregarding truth has eternal consequences. And that's why we talked about the, the scripture from Galatians 6, 7, and 8. And it says that, Do not be deceived, my brethren. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. You don't pull any fast ones off on God. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life. And the choice is ours. And we're a little bit more cast into the kind of person that we're going to eternally be. And if we've responded to Jesus and to truth, then we're going to be more like Jesus. But if we've not, we're going to be harder in heart, and it's going to be harder for us to turn around. So actually, we are the summation of our choices. We're the summation of our choices. And praise God that Jesus can erase and he can heal the years of... of um, bad choices in our lives. Thank God there's a redeemer that can redeem all of the junk that can, you know, the word salvation, the word salvage means to fix up, doesn't it? If you go to the wrecking yard and you go salvage an old car, what do you do? You fix it up, pound all the dents, rebuild the motor, repaint it, make it like new again. And that's what salvation is. So we've destroyed our lives through sin. And now Jesus is in the process of fixing us up getting all the dents and the scars out of our lives and teaching us to live his way of righteousness rather than our own wrong, rebellious ways. And so disregarding truth has eternal consequences. And that's why we talked about the, the scripture from Galatians 6, 7, and 8. And it says that, Do not be deceived, my brethren. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. You don't pull any fast ones off on God. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. And the choice is ours. You can either, you know, go God's way or go your, go your own way. And that's true as Christians. You can still be a Christian and reap the consequences of the flesh. And it's, it's just, it's a very tragic thing to do. So you've got to be careful the way you live every day. We want to live in, in the holiness of God. We want to be sure that we're doing that. And then the fourth principle is that holiness is the place of freedom, 
maximum effectiveness, then total fulfillment of purpose and complete satisfaction. Holiness is the place of freedom, maximum effectiveness, total fulfillment of purpose, and complete satisfaction. Amen to that? Mm-hmm. See, God's plan for us is so dynamic and so good. And, and if we only get a glimpse of God's heart and how much he loves us, we would obey him even when it doesn't isn't popular and even when it's hard because he wants the best for us. He wants us to grow in, in grace. Sin always contracts us. And you see those two little uh, spirals? The, um, the one of selfishness always brings us down to a smaller and smaller horizon until ultimately we end up as just a little dot of selfishness. And that's where people who are living selfishly are headed. Every day their horizons get smaller and smaller. And if, you've, if you ever have been around older people, you can, you, some, of, some older people are just gems to be around. They're wonderful people because they, they know Jesus and they're gracious and they've learned from life. And yet other people are old and crotchety and bitter and they're, they're terrible to be around. And, they, and, and you know, you've just seen how their horizon has gotten smaller and smaller. They don't care anything about but themselves. And they're filled with remorse and pity, self-pity. They feel sorry for themselves and they're, they're terrible to be with. You can't relate with them because all they do is talk about themselves and complain and they blame you and strike out at you. And it's because, see, that horizon is getting smaller and smaller. And, and unless they change that, they're going to end up in, in just a, a place where they're God over their own little selves and incapable of having a relationship with anyone else. So that's the consequence of, of disobeying God. Selflessness is exactly the opposite. As we walk in selflessness and as we walk in God's ways, our horizons expand and the spiral gets bigger and bigger. And we begin to more fully comprehend God's purposes. And we start appreciating his law and his work in our lives. And we just get blown away. We just go, wow, this is tremendous. And we see God's plan unfolding in our lives. And that's going to be eternally true. See, eternally is not a... It's not a static condition. You know, you just get, you're just in heaven and play harps. Nuh-uh. God's got things in eternity that are just, we can't even comprehend them now. But it's going to be a growing place. You're always going to be growing in heaven. We're going to be learning more about God. We're going to learn more about each other. And see, the more you know, the funner it is and the greater experience life is going to be. That's what we have to look forward to in eternity. But we've got to be going the right direction. We've got to be loving truth and, and wanting God's holiness to be worked in our lives. So those are the four principles. Just review them quickly once again. Truth is the eternal standard for right relationships. God asks us to live by the same standard of truth that he lives by. Disregarding truth has eternal consequences. And holiness is the place of maximum freedom, maximum effectiveness, total fulfillment of purpose, and complete satisfaction. That's why God commands us to be holy and he exhorts us to live wisely and to live soberly so that we live according to his truth. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures that talks about God's holiness. You can just jot the references down. Psalms 29 verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the majesty of holiness. Psalms 30 in verse 4. Sing praise to the Lord, you, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. 
His holy name is this pure name, the name that's full of awe and wonder, the name of the one who's worthy to be worshipped. That's what holiness means. Psalm 47, 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. God's government, his, his kingdom, is a righteous government. It's a, a, a government of light. There's no inequity. There's no injustice. There's no ripoff with God. God is, is the only ruler. He's the only one that can wisely rule the universe that we live in. Psalms 48.1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Psalms 93 and verse 5. Thy testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits thy house, O Lord, forevermore. Psalms 96 and verse 9. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. And in Timothy, we re- read where Paul, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, I want, I want men in every place to lift holy hands without wrath or doubting. Paul says, I want men to lift hands that are clean, lives that are clean, lives that are blameless before God. That's what the Lord wants for us. In Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, we find where God is calling the nation of Israel when he called them out of Egypt and he brought them to himself. He called them to be a holy nation. I want to read that, Exodus 19, 1 through 6. And this is very similar to to what God has called us to. See, God has called us to his purity. God has called us to be a different people in the earth, not a people that are consumed with the values of this age, but we're to live by God's eternal values. And we have the privilege of declaring that lifestyle to the world. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Can you see how how, how, such tender language that God uses towards his people? He says, now then, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And God called that whole bunch of people out of Israel all of the Jews of that day, so that they would move into the land of Palestine and that they would be a holy nation. They would manifest God's holiness in every aspect of life. So that was God's calling for that nation. That's the same calling that God has given to us as his church. Now let's look at some of the reactions of different people as they saw the Lord and as they encountered the holiness of God. First one we want to look at is in Moses. Moses is Moses' example in Exodus chapter 3. Every time we find God calling a leader and a man of God and even a woman of God in the Old Testament, we find God giving them a revelation of his holiness. In Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And here Moses reacted. God said, The place where you are standing is holy. Show me respect by taking off your shoes. The place was holy because God was there, and God's a holy God. And Moses' was reaction, Moses' reaction was that he, he, was, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And that's our response. To, that, that would be our response to God's holiness. And then we read the, the, chap, the rest of the chapter where God called Moses to be the deliverer. And God could not send Moses to be the deliverer until he had seen a revelation of his holiness. The same is true in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua was Moses' successor. And some years later, Joshua took over the leadership of the next generation of, of Israelites. And Joshua is just getting ready to go into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, we find it says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our, ad for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to, say to his servant? And here we see the same reaction of Joshua falling on his face. And God was showing Joshua that holiness comes before victory. Because after that encounter, that was the encounter they had with Jericho and the walls. God pushed the walls down and they were able to plunder the city. But holiness, see, the revelation of God's holiness came before the victory. In Matthew 17, we go to a New Testament example. Matthew chapter 17. Everyone who had a revelation of God's holiness was, was forever changed. They left the presence of God, a changed person. This is an example of Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17, 1. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. That's amazing to me. Here Jesus goes into the mountain. The, the eternal glory of God is revealed. And here Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for years, were alive in heaven. And Jesus was having a little counseling session with them. We read in, in the book of Luke where he was talking to them about what he was going to accomplish at Calvary. That, that really is intriguing to me. That Moses and Elijah had gotten so close to God that Jesus, while he was on earth, had a transforming experience in which he talked to Moses and Elijah. Isn't that beautiful? 
Moses and Elijah, even though they were dead, were still participating and ministering in the eternal plans of God. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, we would have probably said the same thing, wouldn't we? We'd have been in that place and we thought, oh, man, this is great. Let's stay here for the rest of eternity. I can understand why Peter said that because it was such a beautiful time. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And see, they had a, a, a revelation of God's holiness, and that's why they fell on their faces. And Jesus was showing them, first, a revelation of my holiness. Then comes the commission and, the, and discipleship and all the things that Jesus wanted them to do. And then in Revelation 1, verses 10 through 18, we find John the Beloved receiving a view of Jesus in his resurrection glory. And this is the same Jesus that we'll meet someday. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of one, in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a robe reaching to his feet and girdled across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he, had, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is the same Jesus who John, in the days when Jesus walked this earth, John was the beloved disciple who leaned on the breast of Jesus and would talk with him. And now when John sees Jesus in his resurrected glory, he falls on his face as a dead man because he can't stand the revelation of God's holiness. And that's what God wants to show each one of us. See, God didn't reserve these experiences just for an elite few, but it's God's will that he would reveal his holiness to each one of us so that we could be prepared to come and live with him eternally. The final scripture I want to look at tonight is in Isaiah chapter 6. And this is Isaiah's classic encounter with God. Isaiah chapter 6. 
This takes place in the year of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah was a good, righteous king, and the king had just died, and Isaiah was obviously looking to the Lord for, for answers and praying and, 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 and saying, God, now that the king is dead, what, what is going to become of the nation of Israel? And so Isaiah is praying and meditating and seeking God, and he has a vision, and it says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah was, I think he was praying for a king, but God gave him a revelation of his holiness because that's what he needed. Israel didn't need a king primarily. They needed a revelation of God's holiness. That's what God is saying through all these scriptures. We don't need the victory. We don't need discipleship. We don't need a leader to take us in the promised land. But what we first need is a revelation of God's holiness. Because when we have that, then we can be the people and we can do the task that God calls us to do. And so Isaiah sees this picture of God on the throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, which are angelic beings, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. This is where the angels can't even look on the direct presence of God. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Two of the, the wings covered their faces. And this, this shows the angels' humility. You see, they were, sh- they were covering their face just as Moses and Joshua fell on their faces. And that is the disciples and John the Beloved all fell on their faces as an act of worship and humility. So even the angels honor God. The, seraph, the, wor- the word seraph is, it means burning ones. That's what they, that word literally means, the burning ones. With two, they covered their feet. That is, has to do with respect. And with two, they flew. And that has to do with their service. And with two, they covered their face, showing their humility. And so in, in this passage, we get a, a picture of what kind of beings angels are. They're, they're humble. They respect God. They worship God. And they also serve God, but they're, they're, they're in right relationship with God. And it also shows us the importance of worship, that worship comes before service. We need to worship and honor God before we try to work for him and do works to him. And the interesting things is that the angels are doing a responsive call. And it says, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I'm, I would think that the angels that are in heaven that see God continually, I would think that they would be saying, loving, loving, loving is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. Or maybe just, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God Almighty. But the one attribute that the angels declare above all others is God's holiness. And that, to me, says that holiness is, is so important that we would learn about, that we would ask God to reveal his holiness to us. You say this same picture into heaven in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4. You see the, the four living creatures falling down, and you hear the angels de- declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And that responsive call has been going on for a long time, and I I would believe that it was it's still going on in heaven because the angels are so impressed by the holiness of God. They never get tired of it. It doesn't get to be 
an old hat sort of thing. But they're always just blown away by the holiness of God. And we'll become like that as we worship God. We'll begin to sense who, who he is in a greater and a deeper way. Verse 4 says, And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then, the, then Isaiah responds, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Now remember, Isaiah was a righteous man. He's probably the most righteous man in all of Israel. Maybe we can liken it to Billy Graham having this kind of experience. And we all look at Billy Graham as being a real godly man, you know, and a man after God's heart. And yet when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. See, he saw his own unholiness. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And see, a revelation of God's holiness will always point out our unholiness. It always shows us up as to where we are unclean and where we need to change. And God does that in love so that we might become more like him. He doesn't do do it to belittle us and make fun of us, but he gives us ever-growing revelations of his holiness that we might be holy even as he is holy. And then God responded to Isaiah. God did not leave Isaiah moaning and in despair before the throne of God. But it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken off the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And here God provided cleansing and he provided ministry from the altar. And so Isaiah was cleansed of his righteousness. And that's that's for... That's speaking of what Jesus would do, how he would forgive us and cleanse us. And he takes away our unholiness. He makes us to stand rightly before God. And then in verse 8, Then I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And it's after Isaiah received a revelation of God's holiness, then he was prepared to go when God said, Who's going to go as our ambassador? And Isaiah volunteered for service, but only after he had seen God's holiness. Isaiah had only one vision of God's holiness, but it transformed him. The word holy or holiness is used 54 times in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah very significantly calls God the Holy One of Israel because he saw God's holiness and and had a firsthand revelation of it. A revelation of God's holiness will leave us forever changed and our pride will be repented of in the light of his holiness. It says God reveals who he is to us that we have the freedom to repent and change. And it's a beautiful thing when God would come to us and he would reveal himself that we might respond in a right way to that revelation. One final scripture, Isaiah 57.15. And that, this is one of my favorite scriptures. Isaiah 57.15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place 
and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God has two dwelling places. He has a high and lofty and beautiful dwelling place, but he also dwells with those who are humble in heart. And we'll talk about this next week, but humility is our response to God's holiness. And God's holiness provokes man's humility. And we will really not know what humility is until we see God's holiness. And so that's what we need to do. And let's look at the practical application. First thing we need to do, and you'll be able to predict what I'm going to say here, because this is all just just a, a process. And the first thing we do is we ask God for a revelation of his holiness. If we've not seen God in his holiness, then we need to ask God. We need to say, Lord Jesus, show me your holiness. Show me your holiness. Second thing you need to do is meditate on portions of scripture that reveal God's awesomeness and holiness. Meditate on portions of scripture that reveal God's awesomeness and holiness. And it's like you sit down with Isaiah chapter 6 and you get alone with God and maybe you want to prostrate yourself on the floor and ask the Holy Spirit to make that experience that Isaiah had real. Say, Lord, I'd really like to see you. I'd like to see you on your throne. What, is, what does it mean that you're, you're a holy God? And allow the Spirit to begin to work and to bring understanding and revelation to your heart. And it can be really quite an undoing experience. When God begins showing his holiness, we respond as Isaiah did, and we say, woe is me, I'm undone. And it's a pretty devastating thing to see ourselves as God sees us. But it's a very necessary dealing if we're going to grow up as men and women of God. So you need to ask the Lord for that. Here's an example of some of them you might meditate on. Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 4 and 5, each of those chapters. Ezekiel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 10. Those are just some examples. There's many others. And then the third thing to do is respond by bringing your life in line with the light. And as God reveals his holiness to you, bring your life into conformity with that revelation. And when you start seeing how wicked certain attitudes and certain sins are, respond by repenting and saying, God, I want to get those out of my life. I want to repent of the sin of gossip. I want to repent of unclean thoughts. I want to repent of judging my brothers and sisters. I want to repent of despising people that don't know you. See, and we, we respond and we'll start wanting to get our lives in line with the revelation that God gives us. And if you'll do that on a consistent basis, it's just like the prayer to know God, it's like the prayer to know the love of God. It's, it's the same for all these attributes. If you're, if you're you know, diligent and are willing to seek God, then God certainly is going to be faithful and he's going to come to you and he's going to make his holiness known to you. 
Now, it may not, I don't want you to go looking for experiences. God may give them to you, and I, I pray that he does. But you go look for God, and you let him dictate what kind of experience he wants to give you. But if you're faithful, and if you'll seek him with your whole heart, God will answer you, because he wants to. He wants us to be holy. But it takes time and it takes effort and we've got to really want it. God doesn't reveal himself to the casual inquirer, only to the diligent seeker. I remember one time I was um, just I was pretty young in the Lord and I was at Youth with a Mission. And uh, four of us had decided on a, a day off that we would get together and pray in the morning. And this was on a Saturday morning. And so around 10 o'clock, we met in, in this little cafeteria, and there was no one else there. We all four got in a circle in, in four chairs, and we just started praying and, and, and do, singing a couple of songs and just worshiping the Lord. And it wasn't very long before we all became very still and quiet. And we spent an hour not praying anything with our eyes closed with a sense, an awesome sense of God's presence. And no one felt like moving. It was such a, a holy moment. And I was just changed after that time. Can't really put words to it, but I was changed because I was so aware of God and his love and his, and his awesomeness. I've never forgotten that. That's something that's a mark that's been left on my life. And God wants to do those kinds of things. He wants to do that. But he does it to those who ask and to those who will seek after him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The Bible says that we all see through a glass darkly. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 13. All of us see very dimly. All of us have a very dim view of God. Even though we've got the, the scripture and we've got all the truth that we need, we all see very dimly and very inadequately. And so we need to be asking the Lord to make himself more clear. And as we are beholding the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into his image. And it's from glory to glory. And it's like going up a staircase from one glory to another glory. And the next stair is a little higher. Then the next stair is a little higher. And it's like we're, as God reveals his holiness to us, we take another step higher and we become closer to Jesus. And it's an unending process from glory to glory. You respond to the glory of God at one level, and then he'll take you to the next level. And as long as you respond in obedience, then you will, you will grow with God. And I pray that God would, would do that. Because, like I said at the beginning, we can know love, we can know justice, we know mercy. But holiness is something that only the Holy Spirit can show us. We can't know holiness apart from God revealing it to us. And so be diligent, and I want you to, to, to be serious and, and take time to respond to the Lord that he might reveal his holiness to you. I want to close tonight, and I want you to, to close your eyes as I read a song from 
An old, it's an old hymn of the church called Holy, Holy, Holy. And I want to read the words tonight. And I want you to close your eyes and I just want you to ponder what we've heard tonight. The man who wrote this song, I believe, knew the holiness of God. And I think that's what inspired him to write that. So will you close your eyes with me as I read this? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and ever evermore shall be. Holy, 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 Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take the words that were shared tonight. And I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would reveal your holiness to us and that you would allow us to have experiences like Isaiah had where he saw you high and lifted up, exalted on your throne, And in the light of that revelation, Lord, that we would see how utterly sinful and wicked we are and how much we're in need of your grace and mercy. And Lord, that we might be transformed by your holiness so that when the time comes to report for duty, when you say, Lord, who will go for us, that we might respond and say, here am I, Lord, send me. After we have seen a revelation of your holiness, and been transformed by the coals of the altar. I commit this, Father, into your hands tonight. We ask you to make practical application of this message in our lives. Thank you that you will. Thank you that you will because you love us. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.